0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we bring in a past guest, Stephen Lavelle, to interview, well, the host, me, Sean Flynn. This is a special interview. This is our 200th episode. So thought maybe it's time to learn a little bit more about the host, who he is, what he does, why he does it. And so, well, this week's episode, I hope everyone enjoys, I hope you share, and I wanna say thank you for following us for these many years. We've had so many incredible guests on the show. We've had so much knowledge and information shared, and I am honestly blessed and happy to be a part of it. So with that, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech learn their secrets
1: and see tomorrow's world today Welcome to Silicon Valley Podcast and this is your show Sean Flynn and yet your friend Stephen Lavelle is interviewing you When I was on the show we had a lot in common a lot in common and you thought it was a good idea then if I interviewed you And I know this your listeners have been curious about you for quite a few years here Sean and what do they know about you very little So Folks, you're going to learn about Mr. Flynn, and you're going to learn about what he does for a living, and I know you'll be entertained. So let's begin. Welcome to your show.
0: Thank you. Excited for this, actually. I mean, we got the... I think this is going to be the 200th episode then.
1: You're kidding. 200?
0: 200th episode. Why not? Let's make this the 200th episode.
1: All right, sir. So,
0: so thank you for this honor.
1: Glad Sean could give this to Sean. So, Sean, how long have you been on the air with the Silicon Valley podcast?
0: It's been quite a journey. Silicon Valley Podcast. Originally, it was Silicon Valley on a different platform. I did 32 episodes there, then rebranded, came over, but that was right when the pandemic started. So there's this gap because I really wanted to continue doing the episode in person, where at that time, just no one was meeting in person. So in total, we're going on a little over four years now.
1: One thing we learned when we were together is I was on the air for four years, too. That was the end of my time. Anyway, your listeners are curious about you as a person. So we're going to start first with your background. Then we'll get on to what you do for a living. Now, you have an unusual start. Most people, they start, oh, I started in San Francisco. I started in Michigan, right? But you got your business start where? In?
0: I'd say the first success that I will brag about was in mainland China. It was in Beijing.
1: Yeah, it could have been Vladivostok, but in your <laughs> case, it was Beijing, right? So how did you end up there?
0: So during college, I really wanted to travel abroad, but I was a mechanical engineer in undergrad. Because of that, I really didn't have the option to travel. It was just from when I woke up to when I went to bed, was pretty much in the library doing 10, 20-page bath problems with my buddies, as I was all just trying to get through every course. But when I graduated, I had the opportunity to go to Costa Rica, I was there for almost two years. While I was there, they started opening up Chinese call centers in Aredia, which is where I was living at the time. So they already had English and Spanish call centers, and they were opening up Chinese ones. And this was 2007, around that. And I was looking, I was like, wait a second. And the people there were saying, because I knew one of the owners of a call center, and he was saying that with English, Spanish, and Chinese, we can access half the world's population. And I started doing some research, I went, wow, China's taken over. I've had such an amazing adventure in Costa Rica. I learned the language, the culture. I had local friends. I got to learn salsa dance. The list goes on and on. Back in the US, my buddies at graduate college were saying, oh, I'm working these 70-hour-a-week jobs. I'm hating my life. This is horrible. So I had the exact opposite experience right there, going every day is the most beautiful, perfect day possible. And I thought, I don't want their life, I wanna continue this journey, and China's taken over the world. If I can get the knowledge experience that I had in Costa Rica with China, I was just thinking all the doors that were gonna open for the rest of my life. And so, at that point, I went, okay, I'm gonna go to China, I'll probably stay there a year, because I figured in Costa Rica, it took me about four months to learn the language, not learn the language, but enough of the language to have basic conversations started to understand the culture more as I was learning the language, starting to get all these things just start opening up, but it was in a short time. And I figured, okay, Costa Rica took four months, China's gonna be a little bit more difficult, it might take a year. I'll allocate that amount of time. I went to China and it was 10X, 100X more difficult than I thought. And really, after nine months, I was barely able to order off a of menu. And so I stayed there longer until I felt I was comfortable with the language, with the culture completing all the goals that I had going into it. But in that process, I also started a couple companies. Two of them failed. I think I've actually shared some of the stories on past episodes, but because of those failures and the learning from each of those, and the second one did a little bit better than the first, but I started a third company, which actually I was able to exit two and a half years later. And in that span, at the very peak, had a bunch of employees, had a couple offices. It was pretty, I've still pat myself on the back, and it's really hilarious because at the time, I didn't really think much of it. And then coming back to the U.S. years later, I'm even I'm more impressed with what was accomplished. But at the time, I didn't really think too much of it. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, you started a successful company, you had an exit in Beijing, China. And actually, more than anything, in that time in China, I was there almost five years total. I met my wife there, who's now obviously here in the U.S. with me. But you know, she kept me there for a good amount of time as well.
1: Not just here in the U.S., but here in the studio.
0: Here in the studio. So she's Just, looking over, making sure I say everything correctly and that. and No, but honestly, that was the best thing to come from China.
1: So you tantalize your listeners. When you say you start a business, what kind of business was it? The third one.
0: So to understand the business, you have to dive into a little bit about the culture and the time. And there's a lot of things, components to it. At that time, this was back 2010. All the universities, everyone wanted foreigners to be teachers for the language programs. They wanted native English speakers, native Korean speakers, native Japanese speakers, whoever they were, it was mostly English speakers. The issue was the universities couldn't provide work visas. So to get these teachers, they would have to go to a, a, a staffing company or another party. They didn't have access to foreigners. I had access to foreigners. I partnered with a professor, one of my early professors that had the university connections. We mm-hmm. came together in this great collaboration where I would get the foreigner, She would get the universities, we would get the contracts, we would also work with businesses to provide the visas, and we were a staffing company. That's how it started. Now that expanded quite a bit. And what I mean by that is when you have access to all these foreigners, there's a lot that people wanted to get done such as voiceovers for books or movies or audiobooks or voiceovers for movies, extras for movies. It ended up becoming a, a staffing company, more of a rent a westerner company. Whereas if you wanted a model for an event or someone to cut a ribbon or the list, it just kept growing over time. And I can, there's there are so many different creative things that people came to us saying we would like this person for this event or to do this or for this project or for this, the list just kept going. And so it expanded and grew. And right place, right time right connections, the network, and it just grew.
1: You solved problems for people. I get that. And you also met your wife at that time. How did you meet her?
0: So, so that story has been told countless times. It's, it was pretty hilarious in the fact that the gym I went to, her roommate used to work there at the front counter, and her roommate wanted to learn English, and I wanted to practice my Chinese. So let's do a language exchange. But of course, she saw how handsome and attractive I was, and immediately... So my, my, for everyone listening to the podcast, my, my wife is here in the studio. No, but she brought my wife to that meeting more as a chaperone, more as a, hey, I don't know who this foreigner is. Let's bring my roommate as either a buddy protection, who knows the, what was the reason originally, but she brought her roommate. And of course, during that language exchange, it was like, yeah, you're learning Chinese great. Now your roommate here also definitely needs to learn English as well, right? And it wasn't that aggressive. But uh, no, we uh, we met then. Nothing really happened. And about six months later, I was walking in the mall, and I was like, oh my gosh, I know this person. And said hi, and she's like, yeah, I know you. We did the language exchange months back. And then after that, it was, do you want to go play badminton sometime? And then we played badminton. And then it was badminton every week for months. And then finally, one thing led to another, and now yeah, we started dating.
1: So... You came back with some business experience from Beijing. You came back also with a gorgeous wife. So after Beijing, what then, Sean, in your career?
0: There was an interesting transition period. So I came back there. My dad had passed, and that's actually what brought me back to the U.S. to take care of things. So for that first year back, there was a pretty difficult transition in the fact that I had to take care of a lot of things just because of the situation. When I was entering the work environment here in the U.S. and Silicon Valley, it was very interesting to me because I, by that point, I'd lived almost eight years overseas after college. Costa Rica, China, I was in Europe for a little bit, then I went back to China. And that whole time, amazing adventures, learned a couple languages, learned a couple cultures, had experiences that I would say would rival pretty much anyone. But at the same time, when I come back to the U.S., I wasn't really that employable. And what I mean by that is Every interview I went to, they would say, you're really impressive, but you're gonna get bored here and leave in less than a year. And I was sitting there like, this is Silicon Valley, no one makes it longer than a year, but I really like this job, this opportunity and that. And so it was a little bit difficult there because I had all these experiences and people thought I was gonna get bored, so corporations weren't too excited. But the startup ecosystem was very excited. So I got the opportunity, a contact buddy of mine started a startup. They were looking for an account executive. He said, Sean, you've owned a company, you've grown it. your sales. Come on board. We'd love you. In that process, I got to meet a bunch of angel investors in the startup community which then led me to start off volunteering, but then moved up to the investment director of this angel group here in Silicon Valley, which then led to doing partnerships between this angel group that had all these years of connections with all these Chinese incubators and accelerators that were opening up through Silicon Valley at that time. It was the, Sean, Sean's part of this group with 20 years of connections, and he speaks the language and knows the culture of this group with brand new money, but no connections. To how can everyone partner up for a win-win, and then the group with the new money, the Chinese incubator sellers were like, why don't we just hire you? So then I onboarded, I was at a company that was backed by the second largest land development, privately owned land development company in China. I was there for a number of years, going back and forth between China and US. In that process, got to meet a lot of investment bankers, got to meet a lot of investors, and then I pivoted from that into the investment banking world. So that's been my very unusual journey.
1: (laughs) maybe a pattern for some other people. Now, you brought up the term startup. In that term, lurk a lot of mystery, Sean. So if you look at the typical development of a startup, are you able to extract from that stages of development? You did an MBA, right? Yes and no. Oh, I, I thought that was one of our similarities. I technically
0: don't have an MBA, but I will say I helped my wife get her MBA. I, was, yeah, I gathered a lot of the information from her time.
1: <laughs> you think like an MBA graduate. So... Are you able then to identify, call it stages of development, that are typical in a startup?
0: Definitely. I mean, one of the conversations, and I advise a lot of startups at the Small Business Development Center, I've helped with a lot of companies with planning their funding strategy and the milestones and that of what needs to be hit to talk to what investors at what time and whether this is your seed A round or later on, how this it get divided? So,
1: Yeah. And those terms you just used there, those are referring to different stages of money gathering, correct?
0: Yes. And whether it's outside capital, professional capital institutions, or if it's individual, or even angels, or even before that, maybe friends and family, there's normally different... There's a predictable pattern for raising capital of start off with friends and family, then move into more angels and angel syndicates, and then more institutional where investment bank or not venture capitalists that are investing money on others behalf that they'd raise. Mm-hmm. And then it moves down the line to potentially private equity or the public market or whatever stage. But yeah, there's normally milestones and Things that are hit between those funding rounds, a, a company, a VC is not gonna that writes five million dollar checks most likely is not gonna write a check for that company that's still in the garage. That's just an idea. There normally has to be a couple things hit before it gets to that point.
1: And do you, as an investment banker, have a preferred habitat in that capital raise?
0: Good do? Question: Yes, for it to make sense for us to be involved. I mean, yes, I can give some advice to earlier stage companies, very early about to get these certain valuations. These are some of the milestones you will have to hit. This is some of the things that investors are going to look at. And I can give advice and guidance, but really to be involved in it and run the transaction, it really needs to be Between that 10 and $250 million range. That's where we really like to play. That's where there's enough, where the transaction's a big enough size that our fees make sense. Before that, it just really doesn't pencil out. And yeah, there are opportunities for smaller transactions to be involved in some extent, but at the same time, the percentage that goes into banker salary versus that the company would get versus. It things just, it really needs to pencil out on paper. It, not everything can go to these fees. It has to go to the company itself. So if that and, makes sense.
1: And for that range, you mentioned the 10 to 250, is that referring to revenues?
0: Transaction size.
1: Transaction size.
0: Yeah. And for our listeners, and they know Silicon Valley startups, a company with very little revenue sometimes can have a pretty big value, pretty big transaction size with the deal. So it's hard to say revenue, it hard, it's hard to say But it's hard to say a lot of these more normal units that people measure against because of where we are geographically and the companies that are here, the tech, these tech companies and what they're developing. And that kind of one of the things that makes Silicon Valley so exciting.
1: Okay, before we get on to talking about M&A you mentioned you have an unusual life pattern, if you will. When you were trying to get these jobs, you realized that you were an odd fellow and not so hireable except in Silicon Valley. So a little self-evaluation here, Sean. Here you are at this stage in life. And if you went back to that graduate, you roughly 20 years ago, what advice would you give that young man?
0: Keep your network warm. Oh. So when I graduated college and started traveling, I did make a little effort, but being in Costa Rica where I lived, there wasn't internet. I'd, on Sunday, I would go to the internet cafe, write my little blog post on MySpace at the time, send that out.
1: We remember that.
0: China, there was no, I'd never got a VPN when I was there. So Facebook, I didn't use. I didn't have LinkedIn at the time. There's all these social media. When I came to Silicon Valley, the one thing that I, I thought more than anything I was at a disadvantage of was I didn't have a network. And I would look at people that, were employed that had these jobs, and I was like, wait a second, I've negotiated bigger deals, I've done this, I've done, but yet they had a network that they kept with them alive since they graduated college and nurtured and built out. And it was one of those things I kept thinking, geez, if I had just stayed in contact with all my buddies from college, and even before that, high school, middle school, when I went to college, those ones from earlier, an example, I was at an Association of Corporate Growth event, just a few weeks ago, and I ran into a buddy from middle school, and he's doing really well. We haven't talked in 20 years. How many other people did I know 20, 30 years ago that are doing fantastic now? That you know are great people. That it would have been wow. It would have been so nice just to ping them once or twice here and there, see how they're doing. Would it have been that difficult for me when I was in China to get a VPN to go on Facebook once in a while and say hi to people? Would it have been difficult for me? in China to start a LinkedIn account then and build all these connections, it's looking back, that's one of the things I, now I think I do it really well. I really put in a strong effort now since coming, since moving to Silicon Valley. One of the things I really prioritize is relationships with people and stay in top of mind. And I wish I had done that way, way earlier.
1: Like you, I grew up in the Bay Area. You in Danville, me in San Francisco, I still interact with people I went to elementary school with. Yes, it's been a long time. So I want to turn now to your area of expertise. Get your thoughts on what interests you and me. That is selling company. So let's start. Why do people sell these companies?
0: There's many reasons why someone would sell a company. Most of those reasons, honestly, are, it wasn't expected. Maybe there's a death in the family. Maybe they get a disease. Maybe a divorce. Maybe there's a lot of reasons why it could be a spur of the moment, gotta be moved quickly. There's other times when it's wow, this is really thought out. And it's just time. It's time to either retire, it's time to move on to something else you've wanted to do for years, that new project you wanna build, that new idea you wanna put, allocate your time to. So in that sense, it's planned out. But most people, it's not planned out. There's an event, an outside event that happens that forces them. To have to take the route of selling their company or liquidating a percentage or who knows what it is, but it's a, they have to make changes in a way that it's not their choice.
1: Understood. So after they reach the decision to sale, whether driven by circumstances or by desire, how far in advance should someone prepare before they sell their company?
0: In the ideal world, they're preparing on day one of building the company. And what I mean by that is if they're talking to an expert like yourself and they say, these are the goals I want to have in my life, you can start talking to them. If that's what you want to do with your life, financially, this is how much you're going to have to have for that. Okay, now let's backtrack that. If I need this much money to do this and this is what I want, what's the numbers, the metrics in my company I need to hit so that the valuation is in that range? The multiple, maybe it's revenue, EBITDA, who knows? Okay, so if I need this we'll say this amount, of, I, I don't want to get too technical, so we'll, I was thinking of saying this multiple of EBITDA, but then for our audience, EBITDA is earns poor interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, so it's, just think of it this way, if I have this, I normally would times it by this amount to get an exit value range. That exit value range, after ta- after taxes or whatever, with my wealth advisor, I end up with this much money, and then I can have this type of life after that. So to get to that number, that multiple, what does my company need to do? So say I need to get to a million dollars in EBITDA, and today I'm at zero, I'm just starting my company. How many years will that take? What's the growth? What product am I selling? What's the process of selling that product? How many? And start tracking that to get to that point. Now that's That would be best case scenario, where you're planning out because in that process, or in that journey, They're building the correct processes. They're aligning their business and everything so that they're not there in the day-to-day at the end. They're at a distance. The company's on its own. It can be easily sold and transferred without them having to stick around for years after the sale, which now that's a topic that's coming up in quite a number of conversations of, yeah, I'd like to sell my company, and then I plan to travel for a year or two. It's like that's not reality because you're so involved in this business and you're so key whoever the buyers will want you to stay there for one or two years. Wait, I'm at this age already. I have grandkids, I wanna enjoy my time. Okay, but this is the reality. For this valuation you want, you leaving is a huge risk. They'll want you to stay there, to de-risk it, and to give you a higher valuation. You need to stay and commit to this much, and this is how it's gonna be structured, so you're incentivized to stay, all these things. So knowing early on, the numbers, the time, building it so you can step back, all these value drivers of diversifying your clients, if all those are planned throughout the whole journey, it's the it's best case scenario. Now, what normally happens is they say, listen, today's November and I want to sell my company before the end of the year for taxes. And you're like, okay, let's go to reality. Thank God you didn't say what year you wanted to sell yeah. that in <laughs> for taxes. But I mean, just the process of selling a business is normally six to nine months, so work back, Talking to your advisors, talking to your wealth, your tax, every, all your team before that, six to nine months, maybe a year, worst case. Ideally, you've had these conversations for years before. It's it should always be in conversation as you're doing this business. I guess that's what I'm saying. It should always be in the back of your mind. Am I growing this in the direction I want for the end that I want?
1: Before we get to process, you mentioned six to nine months, and you did mention. We all love to say EBITDA. So that's a metric often used in the M and A world. What other metrics? Do you think are important and tell our listeners which ones you think we should pay attention to.
0: There's a lot of metrics depending on the sector you're in, the business and that the stage of your company. But there's a lot of things that should be tracked early on. And I'll just say those for more. The more general ones, you got revenue, you got EBITDA, or if it's a smaller business, seller discretionary earnings. But even before that, there's metrics such as lifetime value of a customer cost of acquiring a customer, net promoter score, even more vanity metrics, number of views on your website, how many likes did you get on your last Instagram post or followers, there's a lot of things that people can track and one of the ways to know what you should track is ask those investors, those potential buyers, years before, what do you like to see? What do you track? What's average. What's good for the industry? What's bad for the industry? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, my lifetime value of a customer is this, my cost of acquiring a customer is there, and this is great. And then you talk to one of these private equity groups or someone they go, those ratios are horrible. Industry average is this. You are nowhere near what, what needs to be great. You started tracking that today. Now you have time to improve for tomorrow when you want to sell. But if you didn't start tracking those today. If you didn't have those conversations of what to track, when tomorrow comes and you get asked that for the first time and you discover it, there's no time to improve. But by starting to take the time today, you're giving yourself the opportunity to make those changes needed for that sale, that time tomorrow.
1: It sounds like if the money persons or you tell the prospective seller their ratios are not good, that means there's some kind of sticker shock. The Seller believes his or her company's worth a certain amount, and someone's got to relay the information, they're off. And what typical pushback do you get when you tell a guy or gal that their company's worth less than they think it is?
0: I smile because most of the conversations are, this other investment banker, this other MMA, this other, someone else said it's worth this. Okay. And I I often question, okay, why was it that said? Was it said because they're interested in getting the engagement and then later they're going to let the market tell them what it's really worth? Am I missing something here that I'm not seeing? Is it like, what was there? What was the conversation? And in most situations, the conversation, I just find out there wasn't information given. The number just was either just said or, I mean, there's reasons maybe not the best that numbers were given, but it's very difficult to tell someone a more realistic range after a number has been anchored in them. Understood. Once that number is anchored, it's it's funny, even if the anchor is not based on anything, when the number is, sent, is said, it's I won't accept anything less than this. You could show them the data. You could show them the comparable. You could do... Discount cash flow. You could do all these things and show, hey, this is more realistically the range. There's always that possibility, but more realistic, this is what you should prepare for. And that sometimes, okay, they get it. When they see all the data in front of them, depending on how they communicate, maybe they are that person where if there's enough data in front of them, they're okay with changing things. Other people have to learn by going out to market and then getting the response from so many other the actual market what it's worth. Or some people just never will get it. They'll hold on to the business, have to close it, have to give it away at the end, who knows. There's, it's a painful thing to see. Business owners to get to that point where they're working with us, most of them had to be coachable, or are coachable. Have to be open-minded, have to accept information, have to accept experts opinion. There's a lot of things, so yeah, maybe it's quiet for a day or two, but hopefully a follow-up call. It's, okay, I've had time to digest things. Where do we go from here? Is it time now or do we wait a year or two or a couple of years to get to this, what the original goal was, maybe even that anchored number? How do I get there? What needs to be done? What value drivers do we have that need to be increased, changed? Is it the market itself? What needs to be done to get to this? Because, talk to Steven, I want this number so I can get that boat, that island, that whatever it is.
1: If you're on an island, you better have a boat, eh? Yeah. So, tell me, as an investment banker, when you're working on the sales side, what is your favorite methodology for determining price of the company?
0: The market, the market decides. What I mean by that is doing a broad process where we're going out to a very diverse, large group of potential clients, all strategically decide in advance with their investment thesis matched up with that company. And then ultimately, it, you're negotiating. You're putting a good light. You are packaging it well. You are on the call, having the conversation. You are doing everything you can to get your client the best possible outcome for them. Especially after knowing what they want, knowing in advance. Because one thing is that number. Another thing is how that is structured to get that number and the terms. And is it just cash? Is it an earnout? Is it a seller's note? Is it rollover equity? What's that? transition period how long is it what's going to happen in the current what's, what are all these things that matter to you what's the outcome you want let's get you that ideal outcome put that together get it there and oh i forgot what the question was
1: i asked you what your preferred method was for determining value
0: so and then the market decides can we get that overall package that this person wants in that exit cuz the value of the company maybe maybe this number but it's not structured the way that this person wants. In fact, it, they would much want much less, but if it's structured ideally to them, it could be a lot favorable for taxes, for personal, for there could be many things there. So, it's having actually that research that conversation way in advance. Okay, l- this is the outcome, this is the ideal one for you after talking to all your advisors. How do we package this deal to get that outcome? When we're marketing it, when we're having Calls with the potential buyers, how are we wording it? What are we driving? What strengths, weaknesses, how are we positioning the outcome ideal? Are we mentioning this is the structure interest in, these are the multiples. This is the cutoff. this is the timeline. this is it. What are we portraying in this story in this picture to get that ideal fairy tale ending?
1: Okay, so if your prospective seller is disappointed when you make him or her become realistic about price. Do they walk away from the sale and lick their wounds, or do they decide they're going to rejigger things so they make the company
0: better? The sale doesn't go through, sometimes it's, "I'm just going to hold on to this for cash flow." Mm-hmm. Others it's, "Wow. I learned more about my business in these six, nine months than I have built in for the last 10 years. Now that I've dissected, analyzed, had these conversations, know everything out there in the market and internal, everything. I'm such a better business owner. I can take this, not to the next level, but five levels up. Okay, that goal post has moved. This is my new target, this is the outcome I'm going for. The process of selling a business, you learn everything about your business. The good, the bad, the ugly, building out that data room, having the investment bankers or whoever you're working with ask you questions. Having the potential buyers ask you questions. Having reassessing what you did when and why and defending it. It's a learning process where a lot of the time it's painful, even for successful exits. It's a painful process because everything's exposed. And so if it doesn't go your way and it's, okay, this isn't the outcome for me, I'm going to hold on to it. Now it's sitting down going, what's that outcome you want? Okay. Now let's work backwards. Value drivers, what metrics do we have to hit? How long is this going to take? What changes need to be made? people need to be added, removed? What needs to happen? All right. What professionals professionals need to be brought in? Whatever it is, it's this is where we are today. This is where you want to be tomorrow. Let's build it out. Here are the processes. Let's get to what needs to be so that the ending you want is the ending you'll get.
1: So, Sean, let's assume we have a meeting in the mind, we have a seller and we have a buyer, and you mentioned it's a drawn-out process, and you mentioned time period six to nine months twice. So tell us about that, the steps in the process, and where the data room fits in there.
0: Stephen, great question. So the data room is something that, going to what was said earlier, if you could start that day one of your business, fantastic. And all the data room is really is one location where you're putting all your documents, all the information on the company. So maybe it's Google Drive, maybe it's Box, maybe it's one of these other professional platforms that's specific just for data rooms. But say you have a folder there for legal, folder for HR, folder for business, folder for... And in these folders, you're just adding stuff. Okay, every time you hire someone, employee contract. Every time you have a new investor, update the cap table, capitalization table, who owns what in this folder. Maybe you do your marketing, add it to your marketing folder. You just have this repository of all this information on the company in one central location. So when you're talking to investors, when you're talking to buyers after NDAs and that information is signed NDA non-disclosure agreement. it protects you from that information getting out there to people you're not interested in them having it because when your information is out there, it can definitely be used for reasons that you may not want. Some people might want to poach your clients, poach your employees, use something against you, who knows. But to make investment decisions, before making it, you want to know what you're invested in. So they'll want access to the company so they can do their due diligence. So a data room is just this one location where everything you can think of is there. Leases, cap table, org charts, the list goes on and on.
1: Who controls access?
0: So if you're the owner, ideally yourself. Some of these data rooms have access where these people have access to this amount of information, not all of it. You might want to limit, this person has access to this folder, this person has access to everything, this person has access limited to everything, but as the owner, you get to decide, and you should keep track of it, because the last thing you want is to have someone access it that you think is only gonna look at it for a day or two, three years later, they still have access, and you're like, wait, who is this person again? So keeping track of it is very important.
1: When you reach the stage with the NDA and the data room, is there typically only one buyer who's on the track to complete this sale the
0: purchase? So let me go back and finish out the question for the timeline. Yes. So first off, one of the first things you do is build out the data room. So put all your information there. That data room is where is gonna be used for creating the marketing materials. So what I mean by marketing materials, and this is the sales process, I think the blind profile. So it's Maybe a one or two page PDF that has enough information to entice people to want to learn more, but they have no idea what company it is. That gets sent out to many people before any NDA is signed. It's just, hey, here's a A company. Exactly. Then a non-disclosure agreement will be signed. Then there'll be follow information. Normally it's called a confidential information memorandum, SIM for short. And that could be a 60-page summary of pretty much everything in the data room, which gives a potential buyer, you know, answer maybe 90, 95% of their questions. They'll still have more specific ones, and you as the representative will have the opportunity to answer those, either emails or phone calls or that. Then, as this is narrowing down, you depend on the process, you might say, okay, everyone, you've had access to the teaser to the confidential information memorandum. Let's set up a call with yourself and the potential buyer answering those questions. Now is okay, in the next say two, three weeks, we'd like an indication of interest, which is just one more step before the letter of intent for to get people more to narrow that funnel. So the more serious buyers are still there. And this process that I'm saying right now for a mom and pop business on the street, it's not going to be this complex. Some of these steps are going to be Taken out. I'm just talking about more of that process for the middle market, which is where I spend my time. So from the indication of interest, this funnel is getting more narrow and there's gonna be many people that drop out from the sim to the indication of interest. Those people indication of interest, they're gonna want more information. They might want calls with the owners, management calls. They might want access to the data room. They might want some they they might want more before, listen, we're really excited, but before we write this letter of intent. It is non-binding, but before we spend the legal fees and that and the time to build out, we need these other questions answered. Great. Now we are we get those questions answered. Now is the LOI, alert of intent. Now we're comparing. That funnel is getting really narrow. Maybe at this point there's five or six people still in the running and you started with 500. I mean, it goes down quite a bit during this process. And now you're negotiating them against each other and telling the buyer, hey, this is the range, this is what we're looking at. You're getting that down to that one buyer who's going to sign the LOI that you go into the quiet period with. And that period due diligence could be 60 days, 90 days, maybe 120, depends quite a bit, until that definitive agreement is signed and the trans, transaction is completed, transfer happens. But if you work back, say due diligence is three months, four months. LOI to indication of interest to LOI, two, three weeks, maybe a month, that getting the SIMs out and marketing to get those indication of interest, maybe a month there if you're marketing and you're sending multiple emails to people in that, building that SIM, building that buyer's list, getting the market materials ready, another month maybe, building the data room, was that built out or are you just getting all these documents one by one? Some people might get it done in a weekend, others it might take two months, three it quite it's varies quite a bit. So if you add all those together,
1: that's right. Yeah. And they're tearing their hair off. It's crazy how
0: many people come to me and they'll say, I wanna sell my business in the next two or three months and you're like, Okay, is your data room built out? What's a data room? Okay. You know, and you just start explaining everything like, Why do we need that step, those steps? And you go, You're taking the information together to market it, to tell people about it, and then when you find that one person that's excited about it, they have to double-check everything where they spend a lot of this money that they're representing, that's other peoples they pulled together to get this going.
1: Of those many documents you mentioned, which one becomes binding? What's the first one where there's some enforcement built into it? I mean, The
0: LOI has that quiet period, the due diligence, that 90 days of that where you're not supposed to discuss this deal with anyone else you're not supposed to be going back to those other lois you're not talking to other people saying hey this is the offer' We're, it's quiet period before that there's nothing really binding even the lois is not really binding but there is that one component of it that that quiet period but this whole process itself it is oh and I guess the NDA but for the most part it is a trust process you're trusting that because these people you're sharing stuff with it's ah, I mean, how difficult would it be to find out so-and-so told so-and-so that told so-and-so about something that was shared to them? It, there's, I think that's also one of the beauty components of doing business in the West and things like that, just the trust of the person on the other side of the table. You'll hear and see a lot of things in the movies and TV shows of cutthroat, kill them all, take every... But I would say the majority people really have that everything comes full circle attitude I want to be good, I want to honor this, I want to build and have a good reputation because I know this is just one moment in time and I think more long term over the long career over over everything. So there's a big trust factor in this whole process. Trust that you know, your client's telling you everything that's true and there's not going to be skeletons. Trust that you're representing them in the best light for them, trust that in your conversations you're painting the honest picture and you're packaging it. Trust that the person is telling you on their side of the table what is true. Trust that we are moving this along and things are happening the way that everyone says there's.
1: So there's a code of honor yeah. because there's a cost to being dishonorable. Yeah. I we're in the business. So. Okay. Question that. You didn't use the word negotiation, but you said I'm like we're going back and forth. So you and the guy or gal you represent, you are aware of all the buyers. And now you've got offers coming in. And how can you, to what extent can you indicate to one buyer that another buyer is interested without acting unethically?
0: The buyers will ask you questions.
1: Oh, they will. Oh. Give us some examples.
0: Is this a broad process, narrow process? How much interest is there? What does, what's the walkaway point for the terms of price that the buyers or sellers aren't even going to look at what are they looking at something more of a multiple of EBITDA? are they looking how should we put a value in this when we make our there's a lot of things that people want information and there's some things that client. what can I say what can't I say okay you're comfortable with that perfect and then there's other things listen I'm sorry I just can't answer that so there's a lot there because it is a game It's a, verbal jujitsu game where you're trying to figure out those little things that may give you an edge in the conversation.
1: When you're deep in the process and the sale is not consummated, is there anger from the sellers? And if so, who is it directed at? There, is it ever at you and Sean?
0: There is so much emotional ups and downs in this process. That I can't stress enough. Think of all the one, this is for many people, the biggest transaction in their life. They've lost marriages over building their business. They've lost their homes. They've spent time away from their family, their friends. A lot of people have put maybe the last seven or 10 years of their life into creating this. So there is huge emotions in this decision and it's completely understandable. So a lot of my role is actually, yes, there's Excel components. Yes, there's conversations, but a lot of it is this is the process, let's just keep this conversation open, let's keep this conversation going, and let's keep everyone's emotions in check and have that dialogue. And there's those ups when we're going out to market, All oh, right. there's those ups or downs when it's, these are the offers coming in. There's ups and downs of we have these management calls, okay, How are we gonna prep for them? There's ups and downs of, hey, these were the questions that the other side asked. I didn't feel comfortable, I didn't like this, I didn't like that person. Or hey, these people were fantastic, they're gonna be great buyers. There's the ups and downs in the due diligence where why is this taking so long? Why are they asking this? Or on the other side is, why is this still going? Because I already made promises to go on this vacation or my kids graduating, and all my time is dedicated to this where I have to fly out to this. and. I can't run my business and be and do this transaction. There's so many things. Ideally, the investment banker, or my role is to be there so they are able to continue working on their business and we handle the process and time. But there are so many ups and downs in this process. And a lot of times you're there just to be a sounding board and just go, you know what? You're not the only one that this happened to. We're gonna get through this. Just breathe, go on a walk. Let's just get on the call in 30 minutes from now. Is that okay? All right, call you back in 30 minutes. Or, you know what? I understand the emotions going into this. How about sleep on it? Let's get a set up a call in the morning. You tell me when you wake up and let's see if things have changed over a good night's sleep. And most of the time people come back and it's, hey, I wasn't thinking. I was a little emotional. I'm sorry I said this. You're right there or that. Okay, how do we move forward? What are the next steps? You're like, okay, understand. So you got to have a little bit of thick skin in the, in this profession. You also have to know how emotional it is and how it's not directed at you. It's directed at the situation itself and people skills. It's a huge part of this game. It's a huge part of this profession.
1: I want to shift from the seller to you. Mm. So the seller does or does not complete the sale full of emotion, but the sale's done. And now you're going to have what one of my clients as an FBA agent calls his cigar moment. And by that, what he means is after something's happened, he's caught the bad guy, let's say, and he's sitting back, enjoying. When you sit back and enjoy, what is it you often think you could have done better?
0: I revisit the deals quite often. A lot of it comes to prepping earlier on even more. And what I mean by that, and I'm really focusing on that now, is telling sellers the emotional ups and downs and really prepping them in advance of that, of, listen, when we go through this process It is exhausting. You're running a marathon this year when this company is being sold. So you have to realize there's going to be good times and bad times. Something happens at home or in the company or that. Okay, when we have these management meetings, when we're doing, when we got to take a breath, we go in the meeting and then back to life. We're back to, but I am now really focused early on. When I meet someone that's even thinking about selling their business, one, have you talked to other professionals and lined everything up? And if they have, then it's okay. Has anyone talked to you about the mental wellness, about the emotions that are going to go into this transaction and try to really lay it out?
1: Which side do you like working on the sell side or the buy side?
0: The sell side. You do? I like both. Okay. Uh, But the sell side, it is so impactful in people's lives. It's when you complete a transaction. Their lives change in the fact that, I mean, how amazing is it to say, okay, you've worked with this group and now they can do anything they want for the rest of their life. They could retire, they could give money to charity, they could do anything they want. That's just the craziest thing to think about. Or maybe, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's so impactful in people's, it's not just that person or their family, everyone that... You know, you, it puts a smile you're like, I did good, so.
1: Satisfaction yeah. Yeah. you for doing good for other people. For those of you out there, you hear Sean regularly, and if you want to get a hold of him, you can go to his LinkedIn account. The first name is S-H-A-W-N, not the Irish spelling, and of course, Flynn, the Irish spelling, F-L-Y-N-N, and uh, do you want to give out a phone number, too, or not?
0: <laughs> Connect with me on LinkedIn, that's the yes. best way.
1: compliance, a- a- and sir. All-
0: Also, go to com. Famous gentleman who sent across from me his interview.
1: And remember, the Silicon Valley podcast is on regularly. And isn't it nice to learn about the guy you hear all the time? And hear that he learned how to speak Spanish. He learned how to speak Chinese. And he loves doing what he does. And most of us in the business, Sean, don't really... People who work in the finance world, I've been doing it for 32 years. And I find most people I meet are really happy in our careers, right? I
0: think you have to really enjoy it and it's one of those careers where I like it because you're always learning, very people-focused, it's very challenging. There's, it's just it's a, great, it's a great industry to be in.
1: We're going to say goodbye now and Sean will be back in command next month. Next week? What next you... <laughs> week, sorry.
0: Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at theSiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.